Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Good morning. It's wonderful to see everyone here. It's that time of year again. The time for eggnog and stockings. The time for... Christmas cards and Christmas trees covered in whatever you want to cover your tree in. You know, everybody does something somewhat differently, right? There's always shiny ornaments and garland and lights. It's also the time for a myriad of TV advertisements telling me all the things I have to buy this year. It's also the time of year that I am made to watch certain types of movies. Christmas movies. Every year, around this time of year, I am made to watch Christmas movies. And i got to say, it's not my favorite genre. Okay? Because they're all the same. At least they all have basically the same message. Right? There's always in these movies a Grinch-like character. Or a Scrooge of sorts. And i got to say, he's always the character I... I I relate to, okay? Because I've, as I've grown up, I've always been accused of being like a Scrooge, right? And, and what I hate about these movies is that the Scrooge-like character or the Grinch-like character, they're always presented as the worst possible person. Why? Because they don't like Christmas. How dare they? What was the Grinch's problem? What was the reason he didn't like Christmas? His heart was two sizes too small. What is that teaching our children? We're teaching our children, if somebody doesn't like Christmas, it's because there's just something wrong with their heart. I think the movies go too far with that, if you ask me personally. However, in all of these movies, these Grinch-like characters, they always learn a lesson, don't they? They have to learn a lesson about the true meaning of Christmas. Now, most movies, they don't really want to get into the birth of Jesus, so they say something more generic. They say, the true meaning of Christmas is generosity. It's love. It's unity. It's being with your family. And there's always some kind of transformative moment where the evil, bitter Scrooge has, a, has an epiphany. And they learn the true meaning of Christmas. It's about giving. It's about generosity. And they change. That's, that's generally the message, Right? That's generally how it goes. And so, year after year, this time rolls around, I'm bombarded with constant reminders of the true meaning of Christmas. Well, this morning, I'd like to just steal that phrase and tweak it for just a moment. I'd like to tweak it, because every year I'm reminded of the true meaning of Christmas, but how often is our culture reminded of the true meaning of Christianity? It is my contention that there are many people in our culture who need to learn the true meaning of Christianity. There are a lot of churches in our country that have become consumer churches. In other words, they're churches designed around the philosophy of giving people what they want rather than what they need. There are a lot of people 
who approach membership into a church as if it's a Costco membership. They think about it and how it can help or benefit their life in the here and now. Many people approach the church with really the mindset of, what's in it for me? How are you benefiting me in the here and now? What can you do for me? They don't approach the church asking, how can I contribute? They don't approach the church asking, how can I become a better person and help my brothers and sisters? Instead, most people, I'm, at least this is my contention, and I'm sad to say it, most people seem to want their churches to act like a drive through They come in, they get what they need, they go about their week. I believe that same consumeristic mindset that has infiltrated Christmas in our culture, that mindset that makes it all about presents and gifts and getting what we want, I think it's that same mindset that has infiltrated the church, at least to a degree. But here's the thing about Christian discipleship. In the long term, it comes with some amazing blessings. But in the short term, it's a lot of hard work and sacrifice. Let me read to you a few words that Jesus spoke when he, looked, he turned around and he saw that a crowd was following him. Generally speaking, when somebody sees a crowd following them and they're a teacher and they want people following them, they say something like, hey, good job, you're here. That's half the battle. Keep walking with me. Now Jesus, he turns around and he says, let me give you a warning. Verse 26 of Luke chapter 14. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and, it is not, and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build, but was unable to finish. Or what king, when he sets off to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the, excuse me, to encounter the one with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Verse 33. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Does that sound like the most fun pitch for Christianity? Not to me, right? That's not, that's not what I want to hear when I... When I wanted to become a Christian, that's not what made me want to do it, right? Giving up everything that we have, giving up all of our possessions. Jesus presents this picture. He basically says, if you're going to follow me, you need to calculate the cost. What are you willing to give up? Those of you who are Christians, what did you give up to become Christians? Did you give up your past Your old lifestyles? I hope so. Did you give up, perhaps, your reputation? A job? A relationship? Your safety? It's not so true in the United States, but throughout the world, 
when people consider the cost of becoming Christians, part, one of the things they have to consider is the fact that becoming a Christian, following Jesus, puts their life at risk. And that's a cost that they have to be willing to pay. And we should all be willing to give up anything for our Lord, to follow Him. That's what discipleship is. It starts with a tremendous sacrifice. Let me illustrate this by drawing our attention to two people. Two people who, this time of year, everybody thinks about. Two people who were chosen by God and two people who had to give up quite a bit. Mary and Joseph. When Jesus entered into the life of Mary and Joseph... I'm sure it was a wonderful blessing. We'll see some of their words that we know it was. But it also came, this new baby in their life came with a lot of sacrifice and a lot of hardship. And you know, when we think about the nativity, I think at least when our culture thinks about the nativity, I always feel like it's a sanitized version of the events that actually took place. Right? We see the, the Christmas card picture. Right? It's so beautiful and clean and neat. But that's not how it happened, especially when we approach this story from their perspective. When we look at this story from the perspective of Mary and Joseph, from their point of view, through their eyes, we realize that it wasn't so clean and neat and joyous. It was hard for them. And they had to give up quite a lot. So what we're going to be doing this morning is looking at their story from, the pers- from their perspective. Now, before we do that, I want us to note a couple of things. Only two of the Gospel accounts actually give us details about Christ's birth. Matthew and Luke. Mark and John, they don't worry about it. They go right into Jesus' ministry. But Matthew and Luke deal with the details. And each account, each of these accounts, Matthew and Luke, have differing, I shouldn't say differing details, uh, they, they are worried or concerned about different details, right? So you'll read certain details in Matthew that aren't mentioned in Luke and vice versa. And that's because they're both written from two different perspectives. When I read these two gospel accounts, it seems obvious to me that the beginning of Matthew is written primarily through the perspective of Joseph, And the beginning of Luke is written primarily through the perspective of Mary. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go through the story chronologically, but that means we're going to have to bounce back and forth between these two perspectives. So let's start with Mary's perspective in Luke chapter 1. Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. Then the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. 
So far, this sounds pretty good for Mary, doesn't it? Sounds pretty, pretty good. However, especially when we look at it from an historical context, we realize there are a few snags. And Mary points out the biggest snag, verse 34. She says, now wait a second. How? I'm a virgin. That's a pretty big snag. You see, Mary was still in the betrothal period of her wedding, uh, of her marriage. Yes, under the law, she was technically married to Joseph. But marriages worked differently back then than they do in our culture and in the here and now. Marriages back then were arranged. In other words, Mary and Joseph didn't go out on dates. Joseph never got down on one knee to propose. Instead, what happened was that Joseph's father entered into a contract with Mary's father. I know, very romantic, right? But Joseph and Mary's, their parents arranged this marriage between the two. And what happened is a contract was signed, Joseph gave an oath, and then they were technically, under the eyes of the law, married. But they were not allowed to consummate their marriage sexually until after the engagement period was over. And that took about a year most times. So Mary, by the way, that's why when you read these two accounts, you might see something like, oh, they're engaged, but why has why does, why does Joseph called her husband? Well, that's because under the lies of the law, they are married. But they aren't living together. They aren't having sexual relations. They aren't one flesh yet. They're in that betrothal period. But here's the thing. Under the eyes of the law, they're bound by contract. And if Mary were to have sexual contact with anyone including her husband, but if, if it's somebody not her husband, it would be considered adultery. And the only way to break an engagement, to break that contract, would be through divorce. And we need to understand a couple of things. Understanding the historical context, we realize that Mary was probably no older than 15 years old. She might have been closer to 13 years old because that was the normal age for betrothal. This is a young girl we're talking about. The second thing we need to realize is that when the angel tells her you're going to have a child, the angel is telling her you're about to deal with some sticky consequences. Because what's Joseph going to think? What's my family going to think? What's the community going to say about me when they realize I'm pregnant? I didn't do anything wrong. If I was Mary, I wouldn't just be perplexed by this statement. I would be terrified of what's going to happen to me. Because technically, under the eyes of the law, she could be stoned for this. She could be stoned for committing adultery. Now, we don't know how her family would have reacted. It doesn't seem like they would go that far. But... These are real-world consequences she is going to have to face. Now, the angel explains to her how she's going to have a baby. The angel answered, verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she, who was called barren, is now in her sixth month. 
for nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, yeah, but what are people going to believe? Okay, that's not what she said. That's maybe what I would have said. That's what I would have at least been thinking. But no, look at what she says. She says, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be a done according to your word. I think that's amazing faith on, on the part of this 15-year-old girl, right? She's being told, you're about to be pregnant and you're unmarried, or at least you're in that stage of marriage that you're not supposed to be having sex. And she says, you know what? I'm your servant. Do what you will. That's amazing faith. Now, Luke tells us from that point onward, uh, right after this visit by the angel, she leaves town and visits her cousin, Elizabeth, or her relative, Elizabeth. And uh, I don't think she's leaving town to hide the pregnancy. No, it's, it's more to visit Elizabeth because she's there for about three months. And if you were paying attention to the timeline, uh, Elizabeth was already six months into her pregnancy. So it seems to me that she's gone to visit her relative and she got to see Elizabeth have her child and then she comes back to town. She comes back to Nazareth. And that's where we bounce back into Matthew's perspective. Go ahead and turn with me to the book of, or excuse me, to Joseph's perspective in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Mary comes back into town. Verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. What does that phrase mean? She was found to be with child. They didn't have home pregnancy tests back then. I believe what this means is that people were beginning to notice the change in her. She'd been gone three months. She comes back, and it doesn't take long for people to realize she's got a bump. And I'm sure it started with rumors and whispers. Who knows what Joseph heard pat in the, in the, just the, through the grapevine. But here they are talking about this scandal. And Joseph, what is he to believe? Because I, I do believe Mary must have tried to explain it to him, right? She must have tried to tell him about the, the angel and about what was really happening. But how is that going to sound to Joseph? How would that sound to you? Unbelievable, right? And so Joseph feels utterly betrayed. She's committed adultery before they could even be together. She's gone off with somebody else. And he's just, I have to imagine he must have been devastated. But he also feels compassion for her. And that's why in verse 19 it says, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. He had every right to throw her to the wolves, so to speak. But he didn't. Instead, he thought, okay, I will do this in a way that will not shame her publicly. I 
I'm hoping that you're noticing a trend here, that these are two good people, right? God chose them for a reason. But, verse 20, when, when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So the angel comes to Joseph and says, It's okay. She's telling the truth. It truly is a miracle. She's a virgin. Marry her. She hasn't betrayed you. And Joseph does it. But what does that mean? Think about what this means for Joseph. Everybody who saw the bump, everybody who had been whispering or, or speaking about this scandal that had taken place, they realized that there were only two possibilities as to why the bump was there. One, it was Joseph. Or two, she had been with someone else, perhaps while she was out of town. And you know, when Joseph doesn't divorce her, when he takes her as his wife, he's basically proclaiming to everyone around them that he's the one who did it. He's saying, yes, say what you want. I'm an immoral man. That's, that's the message that they're receiving, at least. And that stigma, I know we live in a culture that's very different now where that kind of stigma doesn't stick around, but it did back then. And there's evidence to suggest it stuck with their family for years to come. We fast forward uh, at least 30 years into into Jesus' ministry. And there's a moment in John chapter 8 when Jesus is speaking with the Jewish leaders and they actually speak, in speaking to him, obviously you know the Jewish leaders did not like Jesus very much. Um, and so at the same time, they couldn't really keep up with his argumentation, right? He was just too good a debater. So what they would do is they'd go for cheap shots. And there's one instance in John chapter 8, and starting in verse 41, Jesus tells them, you're, you're committing deeds of your, true, of your true father. They've been talking about Abraham and the fact that these men are descendants of Abraham. And Jesus is basically making the point, yeah, you may be descendants of Abraham, but your true father is Satan. That's what he's saying to them. And they respond by saying, well, we were not born out of fornication. We are not illegitimate. We know who our father is. And there are a lot of scholars who, who believe that they are not just saying we know who our father is, they're implying Jesus doesn't know who his father is. In other words, they're bringing back, they're bringing up the point that Jesus would have been considered illegitimate. Now, I had, that had never struck me before. That Jesus, at least while he was growing up in Nazareth, would have been considered an illegitimate child. A child born of fornication, out of wedlock which was a very shameful thing. 
You see, Mary and Joseph, they were sacrificing their reputation. And that tarnish would stick with them. But they were willing to give it up. They were willing to give up their reputation as moral people. Why? Because they wanted to follow God's word. They wanted to follow his direction. And so they did. Now we're told, let's bounce back to Mary's perspective, back in Luke chapter 2. We're told how the story continues. They travel to Bethlehem, and while there, Mary goes into labor. There's no room at the inn. This is, of course, the famous part of the story. They, so they have to go into a barn, and she gives birth in a barn. She places her child in a feeding trough, for that is what a manger is. Of course, the, uh, the, the shepherds come, fall down before the baby. They worship him. And Luke tells us that Mary pondered these things, treasuring them in her heart. She's paying attention. She's watching this. Now, if we follow the story chronologically, this is not where the Magi show up. This is not where the wise men show up, although that's generally how the Christmas cards present it, right? There's actually something that happens before the Magi show up which we read about in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Go ahead and turn there if you haven't already. It says, And when the days of the, for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Basically, what that means is this is 40 days after Jesus was born. Bethlehem and Jerusalem are not far away from each other at all. So they've traveled to Jerusalem after the 40 days of purification are complete. Mary is going to go to the temple. She's going to purify herself ceremonially. And they're also going to present Jesus to the Lord at the temple. It's a, it's a, a command that was given them, really, a, a, really kind of like a rite of passage for every young child. So they go to Jerusalem. And while they're there, something intriguing happens. Verse 25, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed. And he came in spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus in to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. In other words, he's saying, I can now die a happy man according to your word. Verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now imagine you're Mary or Joseph in this scenario. You come in with a 40-day-old baby, you're in the temple courtyard and some old man comes. <laughs> At least how the story kind of reads is that this old man takes him and then starts prophesying. Well, we're told his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And then this strange moment becomes even stranger. He turns to Mary alone. And look at what he says. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. 
he turns to Mary. He looks into her eyes, at least that's how I imagine it. And he tells her, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. He is a sign that will be opposed. And then in kind of parentheses, he says, and by the way, the fact that he's opposed, it's going to pierce your soul. Now there's some debate as to exactly what's being talked about here. But the most common interpretation is that he's warning Mary about the pain she's going to endure when she has to see her son go out into the world, be mocked, be ridiculed, be opposed, and eventually be crucified. Ponder this for a moment with me. Mary had to watch her child, the one she had nursed, one she had taught to walk. She had to watch him as he went opposed, as he was mocked and spat upon and beaten and scourged and brutally murdered. Would you want Mary's job? If you could take Mary's place, would you want to? You know, we can get so caught up by thinking, wow, how amazing for Mary that she was chosen by God to raise the Son of God. How amazing must that have been for her? And we forget what she had to endure, what she had to give up. Now, Joseph, you may be wondering, well, why am I not talking about Joseph? Isn't it the same pain for him? Well, we believe the reason Simeon's looking at at Mary alone right now is because Joseph died of natural causes before the crucifixion, and perhaps even before Jesus' ministry began. So think about it. Even, it's even worse now because Mary's without her husband and she has to watch her own son brutally executed. The angel started off his message to her. Greetings, favored one. Does that sound so favored? Does she sound so favored now? So favor- Does it sound so favorable? The entrance of Jesus into their lives came with a lot of hardship. Now, if we continue the story chronologically, we have to bounce back again to Joseph's perspective. In Matthew, again, chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Now, the, this, the, the Magi have now shown up. The Magi, the wise men from the east, probably arrived on the scene when Jesus was perhaps up to two years old. Okay? He had, they had at least been living in, Jerusalem, or excuse me, in Bethlehem for several months. And so the Magi saw the star, they made their way to Jerusalem, and they went to King Herod. And they asked him, where's the Messiah? And King Herod asked his advisors, they knew the old scriptures, and they said, oh, the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. So King Herod tells the Magi, tells these wise men, go to Bethlehem, find the child, let me know where he is. 
And he tells them this, and he says, I'll go with you and I'll worship him. But really, he's got an ulterior motive. Because Herod, just like the rest of his family, he's afraid he's going to lose his power to this newborn king. So he plans on murdering the child. The Magi, after giving their gold, their frankincense and myrrh, the Magi are warned in a dream, don't go back to Herod, go to your home another way. And that's what they do. But this isn't going to stop Herod. Herod then plans to take a page out of the playbook of of pharaohs of old. Right? He decides, you know what, I'm just going to slaughter every male child under the age of two in the whole Bethlehem area. And so that's what he does. But God isn't about to let Jesus be harmed in this way. It's much too early. So Joseph is visited once again in a dream. In verse 13 it says, Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And we're told that very night, they pack their things and they leave. That's exactly what Joseph does. He leaves, Jerusalem, or he leaves the Jerusalem area, he leaves Bethlehem, and he goes to a foreign land, takes his family with him to a land he's never been to, a land he doesn't know the customs of, into this foreign land for a child that's not even his. But he made him his, didn't he? And here they are, having to wait. And they don't know how long they have to wait in this land for Herod to die. They don't know how long they're going to be down there. But they do it. They're willing to give up their home because they want to follow God. And now at this point, they want to protect their child. Well, Herod eventually died. So one more time, an angel came to, Dave, uh, came to Joseph Verse 20, it says, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets he shall be called a Nazarene. Now I want us to notice some, uh, something that most people don't point out in that passage. And that is it seems like Joseph had every intention when they came back to Israel, he had every intention to go back to Bethlehem. Because if you've been paying attention to the timeline so far, it all started in Nazareth, then they moved to Bethlehem, they stayed there for at least a few months, probably up to two years. They stayed in Bethlehem, And then they had to run off to Egypt. So it seems like they had made a home in Bethlehem, that that's the place they wanted to go back to. And when we realize the stigma that surrounded them, I I don't think it's quite a shock to us why he would want to stay in Bethlehem. Because people in Bethlehem didn't know the scandalous story, did they? But people in Nazareth did. And that's where, through God's guidance, Joseph returns back to where it all started. And I I can't help but imagine, as they returned, the smug looks on people's faces. Oh, thought you could run off, did you? 
thought these other people in other towns wouldn't know about your sin, did you? But they come back. The only place on earth where their reputation is tarnished, but they do it, again, through God's guidance, because they're willing to give up these things for the sake of their child and for the sake of following God's instruction. Now, the rest of the story becomes the gospel accounts, the greatest story ever told. But we're going to pause right there as we've reached an end to what's called the nativity. But as I look at the nativity story, and especially from this new perspective that's not generally looked at uh, during the you know, Christmas songs and, and during, uh, you know, on the Christmas cards, I am floored by the faith of these two people. I am floored by their willingness to give up whatever they had to. And I'm also sobered by their example. Because if it's expected of them, it's also expected of us. If they were willing to give up all of these things, we should also be willing to give up these things. The entrance of Jesus into our life means the forsaking of all else. Forsaking of all the things in the world. A denial of ourselves. As Jesus said to those people following him, he said, you need to consider the costs. When you follow me, you are giving up on everything else. You are sacrificing everything else. You're sacrificing even your own self. You're dying to yourself, taking up your cross. What are we willing to sacrifice for Jesus, for following him? If the answer isn't everything, it's the wrong answer. And there's a problem. You see, Christianity, it's not the shallow end of a pool. We can't dip our toes in. To be a true Christian, it takes everything we've got. We've got to be fully submerged to be a Christian. You're either all in or you're not in at all. Christianity is not some added bonus to our lives that can help us in the here and now. It is the core of our identity. And it means we forsake all else for our Savior. Now, let me offer one final hope. Because that may seem, as I mentioned earlier, to be a pretty harsh pitch, right? It sounds, you may be thinking, well, Christianity sounds like a lot more trouble than it's worth. And here's the thing about discipleship. It's a bit of a paradox. By giving by the giving up of our own physical possessions, we gain treasure in heaven. By humbling ourselves, we are exalted. James 4.10 By becoming slaves, we are set free. Romans 6.18 In our weakness, we find strength. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 By giving up our very lives, by dying, we gain eternal life. Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. There's a paradox going on here. Jesus said it this way, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And isn't that the lesson that the, Gr- the Grinch or Scrooge-like character always learns in the Christmas movies? 
they always have to learn that by giving away, by becoming generous, they're actually gaining something more important, right? In their soul, in their heart. That's the lesson, right? And that is true in, in those small acts of kindness, but it's also true in the bigger picture. By giving, really by giving up of everything, by sacrificing everything for God, for Christ, and following Him, we're gaining something so much better back and in return. And if you give up everything for Christ, if you sacrifice your very self for Him, you're not going to regret it. In this lesson, we've pondered whether or not Mary and Joseph perhaps thought that they got a raw deal. And maybe in moments of weakness, they thought that. But when you read the story and you look at their responses... They seem very happy. When Mary should have or could have been worried and stressed about what people will think, what her neighbors would do, when she should have been extremely concerned about what was happening in her life and the the drastic change that was about to take place, instead she was singing, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for me, for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, listen to this, for behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. And holy is his name. She's, she's thanking God for what he's doing. She finds it to be a blessing, even in the midst of all these sacrifices she's going to have to make. Long story short, in considering discipleship, we shouldn't be distracted by all the things we're going to have to give up. We should be focused on the amazing things we're going to gain. If you're willing to sacrifice everything, then you're going to gain a relationship with your Creator that will last forever. I think that's willing, I think I'd be willing to give a few things up for that. With our sacrifice comes great reward. In a moment, we're going to be singing an invitation song. And the purpose for that, so that if anyone has any needs of the congregation, you can come forward, we can pray with you and speak with you. But if you're here this morning and you are not yet a member of the church, if you're not yet a Christian, if you've not yet forsaken all else and become a follower of Jesus Christ, then we want to offer you that chance. And I hope you that I hope that you won't hesitate. Please don't hesitate to gain in this rich reward. Please come as together we stand and sing.